Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for those that are here, and we ask you to be with those that are not feeling well and get, heal them. Lord, you know what's going on with each person's life and, and who should be here and what's going on, and we ask you to bless that. We ask you to bless this time, guide our study as we look at this chapter in Amos, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Amos chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Hear this word, you kind of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. The Lord has sworn by his holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your prosperity with fish hooks. And you shall go out at the branches, at the breaches, every cow at that which is before her, and you shall cast them into the palace, says the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilead, multiply transgression and bring your sacrifice every morning and your tithes after three years. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free, free offerings. For this is like you, O you children of Israel, saith the Lord God. Now we're going to stop there because there's a few things in here. So this is Amos calling out Israel. And he says, hear this word. And the idea is hear and obey. Okay, not just hear, but he says, I want you to obey what you are hearing. And he says, you kind of fashion and kind is an old English word for cows, uh, cattle. Uh, it's in Germanic, so it says your cattle of Bashan, and Bashan was famous, it's a part of northern, way up in northern and it's uh, Israel, and it's famous for its cattle. And it says, you know, uh, you cattle of Bashan that are in the mountain of Samaria, and he says, you, will, you oppress the poor and crush the needy. This is something that God had told them not to do. He says, you're to help the poor, you're to, to protect the needy, and it, God over and over said, I'm the the father to the orphans and the husband to the to the widow, and he says, Israel, you're not you're not doing what you're supposed to do, and this is this whole theme of this chapter is Israel's not doing what they're supposed to do and not repenting, and this is where we see even in our day that it gets very difficult sometimes of reaching out and helping those who need help, and finding the way to help them in some in some cases. But he says, you oppress, you're, you're ex and then literally he's saying extorting. You know, you're not only not helping the poor, you're taking what they do have, you know, and, which isn't much. And he says, you're taking that away, and you're crushing or oppressing the needy, those who need help. And then just out of curiosity, he goes, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. Now, this is something that you might not catch the hilarity of, but you know the servant is supposed to serve the master, and here it's got the servant saying, hey, master, get over here and give me something to drink, which God's saying, that's what you're doing to me. You're telling me, give me all these things, and you're not willing to serve. And this is something we as Christians need to be careful of because we have this idea of God as being friend and, and all of that, and he is a friend, but he's also God. And he is master and lord, and he expects to be served. And we want to be so careful that we don't get so familiar with God that we forget that he's master and lord. And that's a problem we're facing, in, especially in America right now, is that people are just so familiar with God, they're almost like, God, give me. You know, he's almost an ATM. God, give me whatever, you know, a genie in a bottle. Instead of, God, what can I do to serve you? And this is something we need to be very careful of because Jesus said we're to serve. We're to serve one another. We're to serve the, out, out to God. We're to pre give the gospel out. And too many times people are looking at, well, God, what is it, what's in it for me? Well, what's in it for me is heaven and all the rewards of heaven. God oftentimes gives us things on this world, but really what our reward is is in heaven. And we need to realize that right now we're the servant. We're to do what he says, and you know, frequently in the scriptures we see this idea of the servant trying to tell the master what to do. And a lot of people in Christianity are telling, trying to tell God what they're doing. And you know, been said, you know, I, I know one thing, God has never asked me to be his counselor. 
I tend to try to counsel him sometimes, <laughs> but he's never asked me to be his counselor, and that's kind of what this, that's the same thing what this verse is saying. You know, going to the master and say, hey, give me something to drink, instead of providing the drink for the master. And then verse 2 says, and the Lord has sworn by his holiness that lo, the day shall come upon you that you will, that he will take you away with hooks and your prosperity with fish hooks. He's talking to the northern kingdom and he's saying, hey, there's coming a time when God's going to take you into captivity. And this whole idea of hooks and fish hooks, you know, if you've done fishing, you know what a fish hook looks like. Now a little barb on the end that keeps the fish on the hook, supposedly. Now, my, my, my fish always slipped the hook, so I never liked fishing that much. But uh, he says, I'm going to take you away with these hooks and barbs that will keep you. And you will go out at the breaches every cow in this one literally should be woman at the, that which is before her and you shall cast them into the into the palace says the Lord so he says you're going to run away and we really get the picture when Jerusalem and even the northern kingdom fell people were slipping out the slipping out of the breaches in the in the walls trying to get away most of them did not get away but they were trying to get away and this is the prophecy saying you're going to try to get away and you're not going to be able to do it and uh he says, come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilead, multiply transgression and bring your sacrifices every morning in your tithes after three years. Bethel is, means house of God, and it literally was a place of worship. People would go to worship there, and he says, hey, bring, bring your, bring your uh, come to Bethel and sin, transgress. <laughs> this is what they were doing. They weren't honoring God, even God's house they weren't honoring. And they were going in and bringing sin in. He says, and bring your sacrifice and go to Gilead, which was the other place where the sanctuary was set up in the, in the past of Israel, and multiply your transgressions. <laughs> so, you know, this was going on. And, you know, what the strange thing is, we're seeing that even in our world today, where sometimes churches have as much sin in them as the world, or even more sin, and especially because they should know better. You know, we have you know, divorces running rampant in churches. We have people in affairs and fornicating and, and all these things in churches running rampant, and this is what he's saying to Israel. Hey, you're, going, you're going to church and, and multiplying your sins. It wasn't bad enough that you're just doing it at home and, and at work. You're coming to church and saying, I'm going to sin here. And we see that in our day and in our, in our world. And this is why sin has to be called out. He says, bring your sac sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. And this tithes after three years goes back to Deuteronomy 14, 28 and Deuteronomy 26, 12, that when they came into the land, they were to give the tithe of the trees and the fruit from the land after the third year. Because God says it needs to be uh, healed. Do not, do not eat of it for the first three years and then give your tithe. And so he says, you know, I want, I want a pure offering. And it says, but it's also talking about these people are coming to church, multiplying their sins, and yet they're looking like they're doing the right thing. And this, again, we see this in our day and age. People coming in pretending to be good in, you know, in, you know, in certain things. God, I'm giving my tithe. I read my Bible. And I'm not obeying you, but <laughs> I, I'm doing all the things. And that's what Israel was doing. And God's saying, I'm tired of all of this. And he says, I'm going to judge. Verse 5 says, And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. And the gifts and the sacrifices were without leaven because leaven represent sin. And he says, you're bringing your, you're bringing your, your thanksgiving offerings with leaven. They're, they're polluted. And it's been said that God doesn't need anything from us. We get the privilege of giving to God and serving God, but he really doesn't need us. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our, our service. He gives us the privilege of serving him and giving to him, and it's a blessing, and he blesses us for it when we do it with the right heart. But if we're doing it for the wrong reasons, it's totally worthless for him. Ananias and Sapphira, I've been hearing a lot of messages on them this last week, you know, and, you know, they came and pretended to give God all the proceeds from a sale of the property. And it wasn't that they kept back part of the proceeds that was the problem, it was that they made the church believe that they had given everything. 
because they wanted the same credit that Barnabas got when he had given everything. And so they came and they gave, gave their, they held back. And it, again, we want to make it very clear. It wasn't that they held back. They had every right. It was their property. They could have just given whatever portion they want, but they wanted the church to think that they had given it all. And God says, no, you've given a gift and, and it's with leaven, it's with, with sin. And God judged them immediately. You know, be interesting if God sometimes judged us for our immediate, that fast for our disobediences. Uh, would really make news in the, news in the, even the world. You know, these people went to church yesterday and they got killed. Uh, makes people a little afraid to come to church maybe. <laughs> but it says you bring, you know, you're multiplying your sins in, in these churches and you're bringing your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three years and, and I'm, not, I'm not accepting them basically. It's coming for the wrong reasons. And you offer your sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings for this is like you, O you children of Israel, says the Lord of God. So you come and you give your, your free, your, your Thanksgiving offerings with leaven, and you proclaim and publish. You know, here, you know, almost kind of shouting it out. Uh, proclaiming, the whole idea there is to cry out. Hey, look at me, look at what I'm giving. And to publish means to cause to be heard. So go there, he's saying, you're doing these things and you're shouting them out. It's when Jesus said, you know, that the Pharisees would go to the temple and they would blow the trumpets or sound the trumpets on their gifts. They would make so much noise saying, pay attention to what I'm doing. You know, look, look how much I'm giving. And God says, no, I don't want that. And they've been warned all through the scriptures and yet they kept doing it. One of the reasons I, I like the way we do it with the box in the back of the church and not a plate is I don't want people trying to make a show of it or get guilt offerings. I want people to be able to just give what God shares to them without this whole idea of showmanship. Uh, and it's been a problem and always has been a problem of serving God and staying humble. You know, serving God without everybody knowing some of the greatest people that I know are the ones that don't want anybody to know. Uh, Had a pastor recognize about four or five people one day in service, uh, in, during a service, and they, none of them wanted to have the recognition. They were just serving God because he wanted them to serve, and they were all very embarrassed about the recognition. And I know some people need it uh, or, or desire it. But if you're really serving God, our, our recognition is going to come on the Bema Seed judgment when we get our rewards. And there's nothing wrong with somebody re acknowledging these people, but why are we doing it? Are we doing it to, for people to notice or are we serving God just to serve him? The servant serves because that's their job and they're not looking for recognition. They're not looking for, oh, thank you, you did a really good job <laughs> greeting that person today or bringing them to me, thank you. That's probably good to say that once in a while but that's not what the servant is there for. The servant is there to take care of the needs of the master. And we are to take care of the needs of the master. And if that means we have no recognition on this world, then that's fine because God's going to recognize us in heaven. And we need to keep in mind who we are. Who we are. We're not just dealing with a buddy, our best friend. And yes, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Yes, he is. We are the, the bride of Christ but we're also servants. And we've got to keep those things in mind. Verse 6. I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread for your places. Yet you have not returned unto me, says the Lord. And also I have withheld the wane from you when there is yet three months to the harvest. And I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it to not to rain upon another city one piece was rained upon, and the, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered into one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied, yet you have not returned unto me, says the Lord. I have smitten you with blastings and mildew when your, guard, when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, and palmer worms devoured them, yet you have not returned unto me, says the Lord. I have sent among you pestilence after the manner of Egypt, your young men have I slain with sword and have taken away your horses. I have made the stink of your camps to come into your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. 
I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were a firebrand plucked out of the burning, yet you have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Therefore thus will I do unto you, O Israel, and because I will do this unto you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For lo, he that formed the mountains and creates the wind and declares unto man what is his thought, that makes the morning darkness and treads upon the high places of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. So here we see God going through a whole list of things that he's doing to try to draw Israel back. It starts out with, he goes, I have given you cleanness or, or free from guilt in your teeth of your cities, of, you know, cleanness of your teeth or innocency and want of bread in your places, yet you have not come return to me. He says, I've, I've given you famine, basically. I've given you famine, famine. you're not eating, you're not, you're, not, you're not having food, and yet you won't come to me. It's kind of interesting, in, even in America, we're starting to see these things happening. Violence and, and, and all these things, and storms and all these things. God is trying to get our attention, and the country won't turn to him as a whole. Why? Most people won't say that that's what's happening. Many pastors are afraid to say, God is sending things our way to try to get our attention. Are we ready to turn to him? Why will they say it? Because if they say it, the news will pick it up and they will be slammed all over the place for saying God is trying to get our attention. And, but he is. He's bringing droughts. He's bringing storms. He's bringing storms at the wrong time as he's going to do in this, in this statement. Uh, he's causing devastation and, and famine. He's causing diseases to, to allow. Why? Because he wants us to turn to him. And Israel at various times turned to him, and these prophets, this prophet, they're not going to turn to him. They're, come, they're coming to an end. He says, you know, verse 7, I have withholden the rain from you when there is yet three months to the harvest. I caused it to rain in one city and caused it to not rain on another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. And this is important. I'm not a farmer, but I have been told that for the three months before harvest, you need rain for your crops. And then you need a solid couple weeks to a month of no rain to be able to harvest the product. Now, I don't know what the reasons are on it. I've just been told that, that when God says this, this is especially probably talking about wheat and barley, you can't make, you can't make bales of these things wet. Because uh, you do that, you end up with... Uh, um, spontaneous combustion from the moistures and everything in there. And so he's saying, I'm sending the rain at the wrong time. Uh, you're, you're not getting the rain when you want it to grow, and you're getting the rain when it's time to harvest. And he says, this is me. God is in control. And we've got to really understand, God is always in control. He's in control of the weather. He, he's in control when bad things seem to happen to us. And this is something very important for us to understand. When something seems to be bad for us, we need to understand God is still in control. And his promise is still true. All things work together for good. And that he is still sovereign. He hasn't lost his marbles. He hasn't lost his, his strength to get things done. He is still in control. When things seem to be falling apart for us, and if we wait long enough, we'll see what God has in store for making it happen for us. And he says, I control the weather. Being very clear, he controls the weather. He sends rain when he wants. He sends, sends it when he doesn't want. He can make it fall on one city and not on another city. One, one, one portion of land uh, of the farm and not on another portion of the farm. And he says, I do that. And he says, the result of all of this is two or three cities are going to gather in together to one. Wherever there's water, two or three cities are going to gather and try to be supported and he says, to drink water, but they were not satisfied or satiated. They didn't, get, they didn't get enough water when they came together like that. And we're seeing droughts all over the world right now. We're seeing just these kind of things going on in our world. Even in our own country, we're seeing these things go on. And it says, yet you would not turn to me. Even though, okay, we started out, you know, you're, you're having famine, you're not going to turn to me. You're going to be dying of thirst, you're not, coming, you're not turning to me. Almost pictures it also in the end times when, when, this, when we have the seven trumpets, the seven vials, and the seven bowls, and God says, 
he still won't turn to me. It seems that man, when they're in their sin, will not recognize that God is causing things. And we hear it all the time. Well, you know, it's just the way things are. You know, what bad luck we had, all these series of things, you know, they won't attribute it to God. But every once in a while, they'll talk about acts of God. You know, storm comes and wipes out your house or tornadoes. Insurance companies love to call them acts of God. Well, we just couldn't control them. God, God allowed it. You're out, of, you're out of luck. We're not paying for it. But for the most part, people don't look at it and say God, you know, God has allowed things to happen. And that's exactly what was happening even in Amos's day. They weren't recognizing God as the controller of all these things. And uh, he says that I have smitten you with a blasting and mildew when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased. The palmer worms devoured them, yet you have not returned unto me, says the Lord. So he says, I have smitten you with blastings. And this is, uh, the idea for blastings is blight and withered. Okay, so he's letting, letting their trees, their harvest wither away. And then he says, and I'm also going to send mildew, all kinds of funguses and molds on their, on their things to destroy their crops. And if that wasn't enough, he says, and even if your, your gardens, vineyards, fig trees, and olive trees do increase, I'm going to send locusts and devour what grows. So this is pretty bad. Right? God says, I'm going to wither your, wither your crops. I'm going to send mildew and molds on them. And anything that does grow besides that, I'm going to send locusts after. So again, devouring the produce. In, in this particular time especially, this would devour their economy. They were in an agrarian economy, so this was de destroying the economy. What would that mean to us? Stock market crashes, businesses going under, would be the same type of activity as this is talking about, because that was their business. Even if you had animals, you needed the, the, the uh, grain to be able to feed your animals, so by destroying the grains, you destroyed the economy. And we see this over and over. God oftentimes will come in and destroy economy to try to get people to come to him. And he's asking all the time, what is your hope in? Too many people, especially here in America, our hope is in our money. Oh God, I'm ready to retire. I've got my social security, I've got my 401k, I've got this, I've got that. And God says, okay, what if I take it all away? Are you trusting in me? And it's great to have those things. I don't say don't do those things, but Really, what is our trust in? Are we looking, God, I'm putting my trust in you? You know, when the stock market crashes and we lose our 401k or we lose the, the businesses, are we going to panic because somehow God's no longer in charge? Or are we going to say, God, you're, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, where I'm going to put my trust in you. And this is something we see frequently. We see it when people, especially in older couples, when they get together and they don't get married, even though they want to live like they're married and act like they're married, because they don't want to lose their retirement pay. And on one side, I understand that. From the human point of view, I fully understand that. But I also know God says, you know, fornication is a sin. And we've got to say, where's your trust? Where's your hope? Here, God's saying, hey, your vineyards, you know, I'm destroying them, but if they manage to survive, I'm going to send locusts. Yeah, this is, Israel has pushed so far that God is sending all kinds of attacks their way. And then it says in verse 10, I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with the sword and have taken away your horses. I have made the stink of your camps to come to your nostrils, yet you have not returned unto me. The pestilence of Israel, of Egypt, not just the ten plagues, okay? It does have a a foreshadowing of the ten plagues where God literally destroyed Israel. Okay, But what was the other pestilence of Israel? Pharaoh chased Israel into the Red Sea and lost his entire army. And Israel, Egypt has lost several battles when they sided with Israel when God was striking against them. And yet they never learned their lesson. Every time, they, every time God was against Israel and they would call on Egypt for help, Egypt would be defeated as well. So he says, I'm going to do just this, because this is what he's talking about, your men dying, your people dying. And when God brings these things to us, he goes, you know, you're going to be captured. You're going to be taken away. 
He goes, and yet you won't turn to me. What does it take to get us to, get us to turn to God sometimes? You know, God, I'm just enjoying my sin. Just leave me alone. You know, when usually we're not that blunt with him. You know, we just ignore him. But really, isn't that what we're saying when we live in our sin? God, I'm enjoying my sin. Just leave me alone and, and let me do my thing. And God is saying, no, I'm not going to leave you alone. You want, especially for his child, he's not going to leave us alone. He says, I want your attention. I want you to repent. And this whole chapter is about you won't repent. You won't turn. You won't come back to me. Now, was all of Israel his child? No, many of them just were Jews by birth and they had no desire to serve him. But they were supposed to have his name on them. They were supposed to serve, serve him. So he put that judgment upon them and then they suffered for it. And he goes, I, you stink. <laughs> you know, and we picture this. If we really understood what our sin looks like to God, we'd be appalled. You know, we have this idea, well, you know, God, you know, that I, just a bunch of little sin. You know, I really haven't done anything really big. And God says, you don't understand. By his holiness, he looks at us and says, you really stink. Isaiah tells us that all our righteousness is filthy, stinking rags. So, you know, uh, and we look at our sin is not bad. And God is saying, your righteousness stinks in my nostrils. And we've got to be careful about this. You know, we've got to be able to start seeing ourselves the way God, the only way God deals with this is because we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He washes us in the blood and then he puts his righteousness on us. And then when God looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ. And that's why he deals with us the way he does. Because he doesn't see us after the sin. And doesn't even see us after our righteousness. He looks down and he sees the righteousness of Christ. And you know, anything else is just a stench in his nostrils, including all the good that we do. And there's so many people out there that will think that, well, I'm a pretty good person. I don't lie too much. I don't steal. I don't, uh, I, I've never, I've not, I'm not going out and committing adultery or fornication. Uh, generally honor my parents, <laughs> you know, but it's these things that, that are not completely true that are the problem. And Jesus even raised it to a higher bar for us when he says, have you looked at a woman with lust? You've committed adultery. Have you been angry at a brother without cause? You've committed murder in your heart. Jesus raised it to a bar. Then people look at what Jesus says and well, well, how can I help how I feel? And you're right. We can't necessarily. When somebody angers us, and we're not really walking with Christ, we're going to be angry. Now, whether we do anything or not, we have that anger, and Jesus said, that's sin. That, that lustful thought that you have. And people, well, I can't help what I saw. You're right, but it's still the sin will pop out, and God says that it's sin. Now, the consequences, and we've said this before, the consequences aren't as bad as actually going out and committing murder or adultery or fornication. But God still says we've sinned, and there's consequences for sin, and that's death, eternal death with God and separation from God. And he says, you know, all these things, I'm gonna, your young men are going to be killed, your, your horses are going to be taken captive, and, you're, and you stink. <laughs> and, and you're going to even smell the stink. And that's talking about how bad they're getting. And we want to be very careful that we don't try to justify our sin. I've heard lots of people, well, you know, if that person hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done. No, it's still wrong. Even though you think you're justified, it's still wrong. Well, you know, I just couldn't help myself. This is the famous line for those who get addicted to something. Well, I was addicted. Well, how did you get addicted? They, they, they pinned you to the ground and pumped it into you intravenously until you were addicted? No, we do things to get ourselves addicted. So we can't even use addiction as an excuse because we allowed those things to happen and so we want to be very careful on this you know do we recognize sin as sin and this is something that's so important when God calls something sin I need to quickly agree with him and say God I need your help I need this is sin I agree with you this is what first John 1 9 says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And that word for confess is homologeo, to say the same thing, to say what God says about our activity. It is sin. And it's not, 
Well, God, you know, if that person hadn't slapped me across the face, I wouldn't have got so angry with them and beat them to death. You know, God, if you, if I, if you hadn't put me through so much, I wouldn't have gone out and to drink to forget. Well, God, if you hadn't put that really beautiful person in my, in my path, I would have never had these thoughts. No. We go to God, God, I am so sorry. It's a sin. I agree with you. It's a sin. Help me. For, you know, cleanse me. And very important. And we need to even in our counsel with one another, not allow people to use excuses. Well, you know, yeah, you're right. If, if I was treated that way, I would, I would have reacted that way too. Well, yeah, I probably would have, but that's not godly advice. It's not Christian counsel. We counsel according to what God says and make that advice to them. And very important for us to do this. And in verse 11 it says, I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as firebrands plucked out of the burning, yet you have not turned unto me, saith the Lord. He says, some of you have done what I did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was totally destroyed. We have cities every once in a while that get totally destroyed through tsunamis, earthquakes, uh, tornadoes, uh, you know, whatever it might be. We have, we have places that get totally destroyed. Not as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah where the entire valley is destroyed. But God is moving sometimes to make say, your sin is so bad, I'm judging it. And in different individuals, he, he will do this. I've seen this happen in people's lives where their sin stinks so bad in their, in their testimony that God says, I'm going to do these, do these very things. Take their children out, take their family out, take their business out, whatever it might be. He says, I want your attention. And you know, the first thing we should look, and when bad things are happening, we need to look at our life and say, God, is there a reason that you're judging me? You know, have I sinned? And if we've sinned, confess our sin and repent and turn back to God. If we don't see any sin in our life, then we may be in a Job situation where God is just testing us to see if we're going to stay faithful. But our first thing is to look, God, honestly look at my life. Is there sin in my life that has to be confessed? Is God trying to get my attention? And much of the sin, much of the trials that we go through are because God's trying to get our attention for some sin. Yeah. Sometimes it's just to be testing. Do you trust me? A lot of times, though, it's sin. And we've got to be able to go to God and say, God, you know, I lost my job. I lost my job, God, you know, well, you know, I guess if I had shown up on time and worked a little harder and worked as if I was working unto you, I might have kept my job. But you know, God, you know, you understand. Human nature to do as little work as possible. You know, and God says, no, I, you, you, didn't, you lost your job because you weren't <laughs> following my rules. And uh, we need to be able to look at that and say, God, I've, I ask for your forgiveness. You go forward. Whatever that sin might be, we look and say, God, ask for forgiveness. And be able to go forward and say, what are, what are we going to do at that point? And then verse 3, Therefore thus will I do unto you, O Israel, and because I do this thing unto you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. He goes, you are so bad <laughs> that I'm going to punish you. And this punishment he's saying, I'm going to, you're, coming, you're coming to meet me. You're dying. Quite, quite a poetic way, but he says, prepare to meet your God. You know, it's kind of interesting when you, we talk to the world and they go, well, I don't believe there's a God and, you know, I don't, you know, we talk to some people and go, well, what's gonna, what do you think is going to happen when you die? And they'll jokingly say, well, I'll be in hell with all my friends having a party. Well, you don't understand what hell is. You're not going to have any friends in hell. You're not going to have any parties in hell. There's no enjoyment. You're in isolation, in torment because of where you're at. You're not going to be enjoying it. You're not going to have your friends, and, you know, because there is that statement, misery loves company. You know, in hell, there won't be company to help you lose your mis misery. And this is something that he says, prepare to meet your God. Are we ready to meet God at any time? If we're following God, we're repented, up to date, we should be ready. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I look forward to the day when I will be present with the Lord. And I hope that I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into, my, into your, your rest. I really don't want to hear, well, you're saved, come on in. 
you, you accepted me, come on in. But you know, are we ready? Are we ready to meet God? Many people aren't. They may think they are. You know, they think that they're going to be able to make excuses. But when we see the holiness and righteousness of God, we won't be able to speak. Not even as Christians, I don't believe we're going to be able to speak. All we're going to be able to say, the blood of Jesus. You know, the blood of Jesus, and that's all we would be able to say when we get the first time we see God and we truly see and feel the holiness of God. Wonderful things sometimes when you come into worship and you really enter into worship and you get that momentary time when you're just in the presence of God. Overwhelming. You know, when you start realizing just how insignificant we are to the Creator. And it's so interesting when we think about this, and I keep saying over and over, no matter how big we think we, God is, we're too small. However strong we think we are, we're too weak. However righteous we think He is, we're not even close to how righteous He is, how holy He is. He is infinitely more than anything we can comprehend. And that includes those of us who've been studying Him for 40, 50, 60 years. We don't even begin to have a clue as to where God is, and we have a pretty big understanding of him, and yet ours is not anywhere close to what it should be. God is infinitely more than anything that we have and see. Understand, he's infinitely bigger, infinitely stronger, infinitely more intelligent, <laughs> infinitely more righteous, infinitely, but he's also infinitely more graceful and merciful than we really understand. That is the good news for us. His grace and mercy will cover us because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And it is also infinite. That's why the song Amazing Grace is so wonderful, or This is Amazing Grace, all these different songs we have about God's grace. And they still only just barely touch the this, this surface of God's grace. And that's what we're going to be holding on to when we stand before him. Your grace. Thank you for your grace. Oh God, I'm so insignificant, but thank you for your grace. God, I really thought I was being a good Christian in my life. You know, I was really trying to do everything right. Man, I all of a sudden realize none of it was worth anything. It was all the grace of Jesus. All his grace, all of his righteousness being clothed upon us and him working through us. And when we stand before God in his righteousness, it'll be, oh man, all that I was doing, all that I, all that I thought was right, and we know in the long run that it's all grace, but yet we all end up with this idea of somehow maybe my works are making God like me a little bit more. He's, you know, we, we, we struggle with that, you know, when we're serving him and doing it for the wrong reasons. And God is saying, it's all my grace. We really need to understand his grace, but not forget his righteousness and his holiness. God has great demands upon us, and he wants to see us be changed. And this is where the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes in. God puts the Holy Spirit on us, and he starts changing us. He immerses us in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit changes us. And we become more and more like him. But no matter how far we get becoming more like him, we still aren't anywhere close to being like him. You know, we can study God's word for decades and change a lot of the ways we think and think a lot closer to God, but yet his thoughts are always going to be higher. Okay, God, you know, look how far I've come, God. You know, compared to other people, I'm at the top of Mount Everest, and they're at the bottom of the, of the Marianas Trench. <laughs> and God says, you guys aren't even close to me. You may be a lot better than them, but you're not even close. You know, multiply that a, you know, infinite amount of times, and you, you'll get to where I am. And he's saying here, prepare to meet your God. How, do they, how should they be repairing to meet their God? They should be turning to him. But yet all through this chapter, for the last six verses, he's been saying, you're not turning back to me. And he's given one last warning. I'm going to cause you to meet me. Prepare. Prepare to meet God. And this is something that's so important. Are we prepared to meet God? If we're a Christian, we're prepared to meet God. If you're not a Christian... You're not prepared to meet God. Plain and simple. And that means truly devoted to God. And we put our trust in Him. I have confessed my sins. I confess that I'm a sinner. I repeat, I repent, and I trust in Him.
And this trust is the most important part. It's not just believing. Now, that's our big thing, you know, believing. And we're told in the scriptures that the devil believes in Christ. And he's not going to heaven. There's lots of people that believe that Jesus existed. There's lots of people that believe that Jesus died on the cross. There's even a lot of people that believe that he rose from the dead, maybe. But they're not putting their trust in that belief. And that trust is literally, and I've said this so many times, the trust is that I have no other option. I don't have any plan B. Jesus is my way to heaven. It's not my works. It's not the things I do. It's Jesus only. No plan B. I'm not putting, okay, Jesus, I'm going to go 90% you and 5% Islam and 5% Buddhist just to cover my bases. <laughs> nope. Jesus says, no. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And our whole trust has to be in that statement. And I've used this as a great example because it's very personal to me. When, if you do repelling, there's a moment when you have to, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to put all my trust in this little skinny rope. That this rope is going to hold me when I get off on this wall, on this vertical or inverted wall, and say, okay, I've got to trust. That's what he's talking about. Is my trust in Jesus like that? If this rope doesn't hold me, I'm in trouble. If Jesus doesn't hold me, I have no hope. And that's important. That is what it means to be a Christian. Put all my trust in Jesus. No plan B, no plan, no, nothing that I can do, but everything is in him. And then in verse 13, For lo, he that forms the mountains or created the mountains and creates the wind and declares unto man what is his thoughts that makes the morning darkness and treads upon the high places of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. And I love this. The one who formed the mountains and creates the wind. God created this world. And it's kind of an amazing thing to me when I talk to people who don't want to admit that God created, this, created everything. You, know, you look around, and to me, all of science proves that there's a God. All of it. It's so complex, so tied together. Uh, the structure of our DNA really shows that there has to be a God. The very structure of a cell proves that there has to be a God. Everything that you look at says, screams there's a God. Matter of fact, the laws of thermodynamics prove that there's a God because if there wasn't, that we'd live in a dead world. Because if, we, if it lasted for eternity, we'd be dead. And you know, I've had people like, well, we're not, at the end, we're not at the end yet. Well, you can't be in the middle of eternity. I'm sorry. You know, eternity doesn't have a beginning and end, so if it's always been in the past, we'd be dead. I really believe that science proves that there is a God. Now, does it prove that the God of the Bible? Not necessarily. It just proves there's a supernatural event out there. There's a supernatural intelligence out there. Otherwise, we wouldn't have DNA, and we wouldn't have all the intricate complexity that we have in this world. We know that science proves there's a God. Which God? That's a whole other theological study, and I believe that Christianity is the only one that is logical, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> but he says, he formed the mountains, he formed the wind, he declares unto man his thoughts. How does God declare his thoughts to us? Through his word. If we did not have the Bible, we would not know what God thinks. And even then, we only have the smallest glimpse of what God thinks. But he tells us so much. The Word of God is such an accurate book. It's accurate in every detail that it touches. And it, when it touches science, it's accurate. When it touches psychology, it's accurate. When it touches sociology, it's, it's accurate. When it talks about God, I'm going to assume that it's accurate because it's accurate everywhere else. So I'm going to trust and say, that's what God is. That's who he is. And it talks about a God that is so big and so more than we can understand. And then we look at this and say, well, God, I don't understand this. I've told many people, I am so glad I can't understand everything there is in the Bible. Because if I understood everything about God in the Bible, God wouldn't be big enough. It would not be big enough to be God. It would just be some smart person who wrote a book about and called him God. 
I have to be able to find things in here that are not understandable. When I look at nature, when I look at what's going on around me, there's got to be things I don't understand because otherwise God is not God. And because if I could understand him, he's man's creation. And man is God. If man could understand everything about God, then man is God and God is not God. And he has to be bigger. He has to be smarter. He has to be deeper. There has to be things in the scriptures that are very difficult to understand because of how great God is. And there's lots of things that are in there that are hard to understand. Just try understanding the Trinity. You know, whenever I talk about the Trinity, my starting statement is going to be, I'm going to tell you what the Bible says about the Trinity, and you're not going to understand it any better when we get done than you understand it before we start. Or you're not going to understand it. You probably understand it better. But there's certain things we just take by faith. That God is infinite, no beginning. That is hard for us as human beings to even comprehend. Something that has no beginning. And then we add no end. And we go, how? How can that be? It is. It's a statement of faith. We have to have something out there that has no beginning to be able to start anything. Because otherwise you have nothing to start. And, and I love Dale Tackett. He goes, I'm gonna, we're going we're to teach you what evolution says. Okay, close your eyes and think of nothing. And he goes, everybody thinking about nothing? Now, open your eyes and see everything. That's what t science teaches us. You had nothing, and then you had everything. And when literally you have to understand, you can't even go to what they do with a contracting, shrinking, you know, uh, exploding universe, and then contracting back down into nothing, one strong little point, and then blowing out again. Because that doesn't even make sense. You still have to have something. And it violate, their, their idea violates the laws of thermodynamics because you end up drawing everything back and, and re-energizing the stuff that's not supposed to be energized. It doesn't work. What, they, what they're saying is violation of science. And this is a strange thing about evolutionists. They purport to be scientists, and yet most of what they say violates the very laws of science. The rocks and, and produced pools of chemicals that all of a sudden popped into life. And every evolutionist will tell you that life does not spontaneously generate unless you're an evolutionist and it happened one time somewhere. Yeah, and it doesn't make any sense. They will tell you it can't happen and yet they believe that it did. And we have this problem with much of what they try to, try to believe. And it says, I have created. <laughs> And I am in control of the wind. And I'm going to tell you who I am and how to get to me. And then he says, if that's not enough, I make the morning darkness, in other words, dawn. It's kind of a poetic way to say dawn. He brings, he brings dawn. And he treads upon the high places of the earth. And then he, in case we didn't know who he was, he says, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Okay, he's not leaving it to, well, I know you think I'm talking about God, but I'm going to definitely tell you I'm talking about God. <laughs> we need to be that brave and that bold with people. Just tell them, God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to him, to the Father, except by him. We need to really believe that. We need to share that with people. We don't need to hedge our bets with people. Uh, matter of fact, if we hedge our bets with them, we're, we're helping them go to hell. And we don't want to be able to, we don't want to be doing that. When we're talking to people, we need to say, this is what God says. Well, I don't believe it. You know what? I've said this so many times. I don't care whether somebody believes God's word or not. I'm sharing God's word with them. It's, he says, my word does not return void, and I'm going to share his word. Because there's no other answer. I'm not going to argue them into the kingdom. Yes, we can answer their questions and should answer their questions. But ultimately, it comes down to what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Once Jesus is in there, he'll work out all the rest. He'll work out all the confusion. And we see this with various people in the church you know, that have come to Christ or, and gotten active, and they're, they're struggling with what they believe and what the Bible is teaching them. And then they're slowly matching up what they believe with what God says. Our job is not to convince everybody of everything they wrongly think. Our job is to get them committed to Christ and let him change their life and change our life because 
we all have problems in our life. No matter how long we've been walking with God, we've got problems in our life that have to be worked out. And God is always, and I've said this over and over, uh, I'll read in a book, and, I'll, you know, and I, I kind of joke with God, you know, when did you put that verse in there? I've never seen that verse before. It's just that God has exposed it and said, pay attention to this. I want you to pay attention to this part of your life right now. And it's an amazing thing when we read the Bible and all of a sudden something will jump off the page and it's like, wow, never seen that before. Read the Bible hundreds of times or 10 times or 20 times or however many times you've read it. Never saw that verse, God. When did you put it in there? And he says, now's the time. I want you to change your life in that area. And we need to be able to recognize God has us. He is in control. He has a plan. And he's going to make us meet him. One way or the other, we're meeting God. Whether we die or we're uh, raptured, we're going to meet God. And our life in this world will be done. And when we stand before God, as Christians, we'll stand at the Bema seat and he'll say, let's look at your works. And he'll say, oh, all these unrighteous works get burnt up. What did, I, what did you let me do for you here? You're rewarded. And if you're not a Christian, you will go to the white throne judgment. At the white throne judgment, you will be judged by your works. And that the fact that they're not perfect. And when you're, when you're comparing yourself to God, your mouth is going to be shut. You'll have nothing to say. And God will just show you every opportunity that you had to be obedient and, and, and accept Jesus Christ. No one going to hell will ever be able to say, I don't belong here. And it's a sad thing. Our job is to try to share the gospel with as many people as we can so that they'll be prepared to meet God. And we're going to close. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this evening. Lord, help us to respond. When you put difficulties in our life, help us to see our sin and repent and turn to you. Lord, we do lift up our world and Lord, it would be wonderful to have a revival in this world and see us come back to you as a nation, as a world. Lord, we do desire to see a revival. And we ask that we people will finally lift up their eyes and look at you, that God's people will be brave enough to share the gospel, to be able to point out that much of what they're, the people are going through is because of their sin. Lord, guide us, lead us, keep us safe, in, in service for you. In Jesus' name, amen.